Welcome to Fair Folk. I'm Danica Boyce. In this episode, I will be giving some insight into the 12 days that are at the heart of this holiday season, sometimes called the 12 days of Christmas, sometimes called the 12 days of Yule. These are the days that, since Christian times, have come to collect this period, which could last for a month or even two in previous centuries. They've come to condense it into the days between December 25th, or the eve on the 24th, until January 6th. That's the conventional 12 days of Christmas since the Christian era. And all manner of feasting, festivities, play, costuming, singing, and revelry has occurred in that period of time, as long as anyone can remember. The second half of December features countless holy days and celebrations, too many for me to list here, and you will know which ones stand out the most to you. But some worth mentioning are December 21st, the natural winter solstice, December 25th, Christmas Day, December 26th, St. Stephen's Day, December 22nd, which in some areas of Germany is Frau Holle's Night, obviously New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, and January 6th, which is the Christian celebration of Epiphany, which you'll see has had many other associations attached to it as well. I won't go into extreme detail about all of the holidays contained in this period, but I do hope to touch on the themes that I personally find the most enticing and exciting this year, which is the fact that this holiday is typified by supernatural visits of many kinds, not just Santa Claus, his reindeer, and perhaps his elves, but also various feminine deities or witch figures, people in costume representing demons, trolls, and other threatening animal-human hybrids, and the beloved dead who are believed to come back at this time of year to spend time eating and celebrating with their families, as well as the Tomton and other household spirits who are related to the family dead, which if you're curious about, you can listen to a previous episode of this podcast called Gnome for Christmas, which goes into the lore of the household spirit in great detail. In this episode, I'll be talking about the 12 days as a period as a whole, and I have a special guest in the second half, my friend Jen Campus, who will be sharing her special insight on this season as well. Before I begin, I'd like to share some news that's exciting to me, and I hope to you as well. I'm offering a brand new course starting January 10th on the roots of imperialism in the Christian Middle Ages. This course is called Unearthed and refers to the fact that at this period of time, humankind became spiritually and culturally disconnected from the earth. There was a strong emphasis on the fallenness of the material world and preference for hierarchical value models. <laughs> for instance, how we think of God as being up and away from the earth and humankind as being down on the earth and hell below. So this course delves into the roots of misogyny and 
anti-Semitism, the structure of the cosmos that I was just referring to there, Christianization of Europe at the end of the pagan era, and how all of these ideas are tied up in the drive to create an empire out of the Christian religion, and how ultimately the ideas that were planted in that push for expansion in the Middle Ages influence our thought, lives, spiritual experiences, and politics to this day. That course will be offered just by audio and educational packages delivered by email because I pulled folks online and they overwhelmingly suggested that that's how they'd like to do it. (laughs) It seems like right now we're in a moment where video calls are not so much to be desired, and folks are really valuing the independence of being able to take an audio recording with them in their headphones and experience it on their own time. So I can't wait to share that with you. This course will be available at a discount until December 20th. So if you're listening before December 20th, the discount is already applied on the sales page, which you can find the link to in my show notes course is going for only $99 US right now. And after that, it will go back up to its regular price of $120. So if you're interested in that course, or if you have any questions about it, you can visit the link in the show notes, and that'll take you to the sales page with all the information. I hope that you'll check it out. A celebration of 12 days, specifically, that spans the Christmas season or the Yule season, began to be celebrated in European Christendom in the Middle Ages. This is when it became formalized to spend this period resting, feasting, and unofficially doing divination, songs, dancing, costumes across this whole period. And you'll notice if you look into this that different activities might land on different days depending on the moment in history. But the whole period itself has this celebratory and mystical air to it, no matter how you slice it, whether it's from pagan times, whether it's folkloric or popular custom, or whether it's formal Christian masses. This whole period of time is devoted to specifically practices related to feasting, to eating large amounts of food to watching carefully, looking out for spiritual, supernatural visitors or human visitors, and in ritual of various kinds, often including offerings or gifts. December 24th in Anglo-Saxon England was called Modranicht, according to Bede the Chronicler. He said, on the 25th of December, which we hold so sacred in the Christian era, They used to call by the heathen word Modranicht, that is, Mother's Night, because of the ceremonies they enacted all that night. This is a really interesting comment that he makes because often holidays referenced by Bede are hard to corroborate with other information, but it seems, because of recent research, we've discovered that it's very likely this Modranicht was connected with the worship of the matris or matroni, these are mother goddesses, of which thousands of votive statues have been found all over northern Europe, which are almost always depicted in groups of three. And this is related 
also possibly, though pretty distantly, I'd imagine, to Irish Women's Christmas, which is celebrated on January 6th, when women were supposed to rest and be served food by all those others who had been fed by them over the Christmas season. There are many accounts of the celebrations in the Middle Ages and the early modern period in England, and these tended to include, especially for royalty and the nobility for whom these records actually exist, so we don't exactly know what the commoners were doing at this time, but they were having big feasts on any given day in this period. They were throwing parties, they played cards, they played board games, there was live music, there was always Morris dancing around Christmas and also on May Day. And there was, over the Middle Ages, developed a masking custom where folks would parade in masks. And at these feasts and parties, a very common practice was offering wassail, which is the old English word weiss hail, which is a toast meaning may you be well. You might wassail someone at any time during the Christmas season or the 12 days. And this is a tradition that goes back to the Germanic custom of holding solemn toasts and ritual drinking, especially at Yule. This custom developed from merely a toast in the early Middle Ages to the later Middle Ages and onward, countless wassail songs that were sung in the midst of these ritual processions inside the house with elaborate drinking cups called the wassail bowl or cup. And then the wassail tradition expanded out of the home and into the neighborhood where people eventually would travel from door to door asking for food or drink and singing these associated wassail songs. This is one of my favorite recordings of a wassail song ever performed in multi-part harmony by the Watersons. If you let it, it might rather impress you with its complexity and its enthusiasm. This is Malpas Wassail by the Watersons. Now the harvest been over And Christmas drawing in Please open your door and let us come in when our ones Sitting down by the fire While we pull the sail boys do touch to the mire When our Mistress, 
sitting down at the race. Put your hands in your pockets and give what you please. When the world wants Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Manx, first footing practices determine the character of the year ahead, as the qualities of the first person to enter a household on New Year's Day become symbolic of what's to come in the next 12 months. Divination practices like these are numerous at this time of year, and it's an area that I would really encourage you to use your creativity in and to research more about the traditions that you're interested in personally. First footing is a really well-known practice, and it's one that you could adopt yourself as well. You might want to take some care about it, which is what a lot of these divination practices are about. They're about paying attention. And you might take some initiative, and they have done in Scotland traditionally, and ask someone to leave the party if you're still awake at midnight on New Year's, which many people are and to come back in bearing objects or dressed in a way that is going to give a positive symbolism to you and the people in your home, to have them re-enter with intention and with blessings on your home. 
There's a beautiful divination practice from Sweden that I tried myself last year, and I'll tell you about it. In Sweden, the Orskong, or the year walk, might happen on any of the holy days in this period of time, from the solstice or Christmas Eve or St. Stephen's Day or St. Lucia on December 13th or New Year's, really any of those days that you choose or any day that feels special to you in this dark period. You ritually prepare yourself, and then you take a silent walk through the countryside to a church or a cemetery and back without ever speaking or creating any light yourself. From an article by Tommy Kusela, here is a description of the year walk from Petrus Gaslander, a vicar who collected rural Smolens customs and beliefs. I quote, The description of the year walk is connected with Christmas Eve, where it said that if someone before first light on Christmas Eve goes into a forest without saying a word, without looking back, without looking into a fire, without food or drink, and so far that the crowing of a cock cannot be heard, they can walk on church roads and see all of the funeral processions of the coming year. And by looking at the fields, they will see how the harvest will turn out and where there will be fires, as well as other things that will come to pass. Gaslander mentions that this is called a year walk and that it is an ancient custom that is no longer practiced. Well, year walking has been revived in recent years, and I tried it myself. I didn't do it fasting without eating, as is one of the traditional ways of doing it, because I didn't think that would be very safe for me. My blood sugar is a little bit volatile. And I went with my two friends and my partner, after dark, walking in complete silence, to a medieval churchyard and back to my friend's cottage without speaking, without producing any light or looking at fire. And on our walk, we saw many curious things that felt very symbolic because we were paying attention. It was the quality of our attention that made the divination occur, which I think is a really key notion to take with you in the holiday season when you're thinking about divination, when you're thinking about how to revive practices. And I hadn't actually thought about it as what would happen to the landscape as much as ourselves, but a really interesting thing occurred where we walked to this medieval churchyard, which was a cemetery and a ruin, and there was this really loud and strange shuffling noise coming from the place that was totally unaccountable because everything else was still, there was no wind, and everything was covered in a crust of snow, yet we could all hear this sound like leaves shuffling or like someone moving around on the ground in this churchyard, which we could also see quite clearly in the moonlight. We took that as a sign that there would be some sort of activity in our lives, that it might be a busy year. It was a bit of a mystery, to be honest. And then a few months later, my friend was visiting her cottage again in the spring. And she told me that this enormous oak tree, which had been standing in the churchyard that we'd been staring at this whole time and that we'd heard the noise coming from the base of, had fallen over. It was a multi-century-year-old tree. It had totally and suddenly collapsed in the churchyard. And so it seemed that the, the year walk was quite literal in predicting what would happen to that landscape itself, that there was going to be this unaccountable movement. And I thought that was pretty stunning and interesting. 
Beyond Santa Claus, the supernatural visitors that typify this period often tend to be traditionally, in the North, feminine. Not exclusively feminine, but there tends to be an overwhelming majority of the figures and of their qualities at this time of year that are feminine in the North. This was a time of year when the wild hunt was understood to be on the move in Scandinavia, specifically in Germanic areas, and this wild hunt was often led by a feminine figure. There's something about the wilderness and interiors being set into contrast, and both spaces being ruled by some sort of feminine spirit. The wilderness had a monstrous, terrifying, demonic, troll-like feminine quality, which would swoop in and kidnap people, much like the fairy host does at Halloween, beginning this season of (laughs) supernatural visitors and riders. These figures often tend to be on a sled or on a carriage of some kind, a chariot, and they come from the sky or from the mountains, from the hillsides, in much the same way that the weather itself and the darkness tend to dominate the landscape and safety becomes a smaller and smaller band, a smaller space that we would inhabit as humankind. And so there's this indoor feminine quality of mothering kinds of figures, a focus on spinning and textile production and on children, which aren't innately feminine, but childcare has traditionally been. And this outdoor wild feminine, like the goddess Skadi, who hunts on skis and is connected with the ice and snow. Likewise, these Germanic winter goddesses that I've mentioned before, and you may have heard of Frau Holla and Frau Perchta, Those two especially capture my imagination and are explicitly mentioned as being active at this time of year during the 12 days. They still exist in folklore as legendary figures, but it's very obvious that they originated in some sort of goddess tradition, although the definition of goddess is always a bit debated. They were deities. They were powerful. They had qualities of witches or magic about them. They're associated with the Desir in Scandinavian paganism and with Sather or Seder, which is a form of magic specifically connected with women and employing spinning gestures and literal spinning in order to create the destinies of humankind. Frau Holla and Frau Perchta both are known to have led the wild hunt which is a cavalcade of threatening figures on horseback or on chariots or sleds from the sky who would attack people out in the wilderness if they were at night out unprotected. Both of them originate in ancient pagan midwinter processions, which would often be on sleighs, like humans, beings in costumes, on a sled or on a chariot, or a wagon that would be led through town and would represent the gods. And so they would receive offerings and they would give blessings to the people who they pass by. And these people would be dressed often in animal skins. The representations suggest this, as well as probably animal or grotesque or godlike or beautiful masks. 
both Frau Perchta and Frau Holla are both connected with infants and, and children. They tend to be depicted in recent folklore, being followed by a retinue of small children who would be unbaptized infants in the Christian folklore, that they had died before they were baptized, so they were somehow liminal between worlds. They couldn't really go to heaven, but they had passed away. So they would be cared for by these figures who are obviously very closely related. And some people might consider them the same figure nowadays, though regionally they would always have their own character and you wouldn't want to mix the two up. The connection of Frau Halle and Frau Perkta with spinning specifically is something I want to mention in this episode that I think is really beautiful and I hope that you'll be able to contemplate if you don't bring it literally into your life in this period of time. The later versions that we hear, the stories and the songs and the warnings that parents would issue related to Perkta and Halle, both were about spinning and the balance between labor and resting related to domestic tasks, which again connects these figures with very old traditions of the very old figures like the Norns, who in Norse mythology determine the fates of infants at birth. So that connection between producing textiles and producing fates and caring for children are all wrapped up still in the matrix of these figures. They were also strongly connected with images of geese and swans and tended to be described as having a goose or a swan foot. And sometimes the depictions that you'll see of Perchten, which are these figures related to Perchta, but are more like demonic Krampus-like figures, they are sometimes bird-like as well. In some areas, the figures of Frau Holle or Perchta were expected to visit homes during the 12 days maybe every day, maybe on a specific day, and people would leave out offerings for them, or they might leave a small gift like a coin for well-behaved children. One of those days is specifically the 6th of January. That would be the end of the 12 days on the Christian calendar, which is known in some places as Perchtennacht, specifically, when the Perchten, and so that would be people dressed in animal masks and skins and other costumes, would parade through town scaring children and also scaring away harmful spirits. Perkta and Hala would enforce rules about when you needed to be spinning specifically. So if you were spinning on the 12 days of Christmas, Perkta or Hala may come and punish you with really specific and rather terrifying punishments like slitting your belly open and stuffing you with straw. You also shouldn't be spinning during the night when you ought to be sleeping, and when demonic forces are about. Usually the punishments were harsh, as mentioned, but they were related to the task at hand. If you dig deeper, you find that. For example, the following story from 1867. In Ronchi, in the southern Tyrol, there once came a knock on the door of a house where 12 women were spinning. There stood Frau Berta, so Frau Perchta, whom the women addressed as follows. Greetings to you, Frau Berta, with the long nose. Frau Berta answered, Behind me is one with still a longer nose. In the end, there were twelve Frau Bertas, each with a nose longer than her predecessors, and they sat down on the chairs the women had meanwhile vacated. When the Frau Bertas demanded buckets to fetch water in, the women knew they were in danger of being boiled alive. 
Instead of bringing buckets, they were therefore brought baskets in which the Frau Bertas would be unable to carry water from the river. The women then quickly went home and got into bed with their husbands, where no harm could overtake them. So the reason that boiling alive <laughs> is associated with Frau Perkta is because the wool itself would be boiled in preparation for creating textiles as well. The punishments were also originally connected with the activities of eating and fasting pretty overwhelmingly. The punishments associated with Frau Perkta and Frau Halle tended to be closely associated with feast days, which are days where everybody is supposed to rest and celebrate, but also really importantly, everybody is supposed to consume food, which represents the abundance of the year ahead. So people are supposed to rest really well. People are supposed to eat really well. And this is like mega important. It's not just like a fun break that we're all having. It's like the quality of this time of year, and you see the emphasis on the number 12 in this story, determines the quality of the coming 12 months. And so it's really important that everybody participate in this spell, basically, that's taking place, this symbolic act of celebration and of pleasure and of play and of consumption of food and of putting aside your work for this sacred period of time. Here is a soporific and I think marvelous German Advent song that I found from the 1930s while researching this episode. The refrain to this song, spin, spin, spinnerin, refers to a spinner who spins on her golden spindle. And the singer asks that she will visit the house of the weavers where the little child sleeps and dreams. It asks her to be careful not to break the silver thread that she spins which I suspect represents the little boy's life and destiny. This spinner with her golden spindle and silver thread sounds less like an ordinary mother to me and more like one of those legendary figures such as the Norms or Frau Perchte or Holla who visit during Yule and hold the lives of children in the balance. This is Spin, Spin, Spinnerin by Herberg's Utsche Gruppe. Lost in it rausbringen, im 
mich dir nur alles raten, reiß mir um den Silberfaden. Spinn, spinn, spinnerin, lass dich nicht rausbringen. Haus der Weber, webt die Dürcher und die Windel, für mein Herz ich ans Kindel. Spinn, spinn, spinnerin, Kind ins Haus der Weber. Every year I'm fascinated by these Germanic winter goddess figures. And last year I was living in Iceland around Christmas time. And I was learning about the troll called Grilla. You may have heard of her. She's been featured recently in Sabrina the Teenage Witch. In the saga literature, Grilla is said to have 15 tales. And other accounts refer to even 40 tales. She is often also called skin grilla, which suggests her former costume of animal skins in costumed processions, connecting her with these other figures. And she's an enormous and terrifying troll who eats children. She has a husband called Lapaluvi and 12 sons called the Yule Lads. And it really amazed me the more that I heard about grilla, how much she has in common with these other figures. And I even saw how she was mapped onto the 12 days of Christmas as well. She's also connected with the desire for food and feasting and fasting on days when you're not supposed to feast. One 19th century Faroese poem about her says, Down comes Grilla from the outer fields with 40 tails, a bag on her back, a sword in her hand, coming to carve out the stomachs of the children who cry for meat, during Lent. And the depiction of Grilla has been pretty consistent over the last few centuries. She tends to be depicted carrying a sack in which she stuffs children who she will carry away to eat with her husband, potentially boiling them in soup. Grilla was also understood to be multiple. She was described in sagas usually as Grillas, as in seeming to be multiple figures, much like the Perchten, she and her sons, who also echo that retinue of children, the unbaptized children of, of German folklore, arrive one son each day of the 12 days, and each son has a name that's specific to the mischief they cause when they visit the home. They come to people's homes over the 12 days. And these names and functions have actually changed over time, but there is one poem from 1932 which has made them quite famous, and so these ones tend to be the ones that are referred to in modern Iceland. For example, Potskefit, pot scraper. The fifth one was a funny sort of chap. When kids were given scrapings, he'd come to the door and tap, and they would rush to see if there really was a guest. Then he hurried to the pot and had a scraping fest. 
I've included a link to the full poem translated into English in the show notes. So if you'd like to read it and learn about the Yule Lads yourself, I'd encourage you to do so. Grilla herself, if we're comparing her to these other Germanic winter goddesses, was not associated with spinning specifically or a textile production, but she is accompanied in her season of influence by the Julekotrin, the Yule cat, an enormous black cat that stalks through town, checking in on houses to see if people are wearing their new Christmas clothing so she can eat them if they don't. There was a giant sculpture of the Yule cat in downtown Reykjavik last year that I loved to walk past. It was all lit up. And children would often come in groups and sing carols in front of it or have their photos taken with it. So the connection to finishing your textiles before Christmas is still there in this collection of stories. There's an emphasis on completing clothing. So if you're wearing your Christmas clothing, that means that someone finished making it before Christmas and they stopped with their spinning and their knitting or weaving by that time. This cat figure may also show a distant connection with the goddess Freya, who rode in a chariot pulled by two cats, in which she arrived to the god Baldur's funeral when he died. And on January 6th last year in Iceland, I was reading about Perchtenacht specifically, and there was a surprising event that occurred outside of my door that I was not expecting. There was a huge fireworks, like, free-for-all. Everyone in Reykjavik was setting off their own fireworks. It was incredibly noisy and intense and exciting. And the next day I was asking someone about it, like, why is January 6th a fireworks day? Like, why is everyone so excited about fireworks on January 6th? And someone told me that this is when Grilla and her Yule lads leave for the season, and the fireworks are there to scare them back into their mountain home. This Icelandic folk song, Grilekvæði, by Thrio Patli, describes the monstrosity of Grela in great detail, with her watching red, ember-like eyes, and her ears that hang six together, and her lice-filled beard. She sounds absolutely horrifying, and the song is totally lovely. Það 
Það átján klikkjónum og hástríð hann Ofan fyrir kaptin tekur klep rótt og ofan fyrir kaptin tekur klep rótt og svar Ofan fyrir höfur taka tennurnar tvær Eyrun hangar sex saman sitt Ofan á eyrun hangar sex saman sitt Ofan á lær Eyrun hangar sex saman söð grá á lýr Höfur skekkir hæru skotið heil fullt af Höfur skekkir hæru skotið heil fullt af nýr add another voice to this topic of the 12 days, and to introduce you to a wonderful friend of mine, I invited the pagan educator and author Jen Campus to this episode with me to share her take, how to integrate the 12 days as a pagan celebration into your experience of this December. I found her take on these practices to be so accessible and inviting, and I know you'll enjoy it as well. So as a pagan educator and author, I wonder how you started teaching and writing about paganism. What drew you to this field in general? This will not be a long story, but I think to get the full picture of it, I have to go back to my high school days. (laughs) Because this is when this feeling of like really deep-seated discontentment with what I saw in the world started to appear. Yeah, it really focused the trajectory of my life. I just felt like there was all these injustices that our society ignores to maintain like a uneasy comfort with the systems and structures that we live our lives by. And so that drew me to study anthropology in college because I wanted to understand how other cultures lived. I wanted to see how other people were doing it in a way that maybe was better than what we were doing. I think that was how I thought of it at that time. I started focusing on indigenous studies to try to understand how communities with intact cultures that honored the earth and people's place within it, how they were structured. And really like through how all the oppression and darkness they had gone through as people the traditions were standing the test of time and giving them comfort in their communities. So I wanted to understand like how our, as European descended people, how we lost our ancestral traditions. So I used my research skills to look at modern Western society and modern Western culture in the role of the observer with the goal of understanding how our society became so disconnected from ourselves, the world around us, and the teachings of our ancestors. Through that, I began to just deeply want to play a part in healing what I feel like are the ancient spirits that are within all of us to bring us back to the old ways and revitalize our relationships with each other and the world around us. That led me to start reading about things like traditional witchcraft and shamanism and other various European magical systems, because the indigenous elders that I spent time with kept telling me, go back, learn about your people, learn about your roots before Christianity. One of the things that I discovered is that 
In indigenous cultures, storytelling is one way that traditional knowledge is transmuted. So I started just like pouring through all the European myths and fairy tales and legends that I loved as a child and even as an adult to try to find some nuggets of traditional wisdom and knowledge. Then, of course, I started having kids. And so I started worrying about them growing up with this unsettled feeling that I had as a young person. And I wondered if there was a way that I could try to raise them with a more animist mindset so that they could have some tools maybe to push back against the assimilation tactics of our modern culture. So I started creating just like simple frameworks and family traditions that could get my kids involved and that they could participate in and that would also grow with us. Probably around five years ago, I just started beginning to feel a big push from the universe and from you know, some of the unseen ones that I work with to share what I was finding with other people who might also want to create their traditions and find their way back to their roots and help the children that they know to grow up with maybe a slightly different worldview or a slightly more developed worldview. That's the short version. <laughs> That's so beautiful. I feel like I was really moved by that, actually. And the fact that I think so many of us feel that longing and that loss and the wounding of, as you put it, cultural assimilation, which I is such an apt word for that. Like, I think we don't always give ourselves credit for the fact that's what happened in our lineages because it wasn't within our living memory, or at least, but it's ongoing, as you say, too. Like, it's the school system. Mm -hmm. It's television. Yeah. It's all these things. But then there's this moment where it's like, you name that longing, and then you say, and I devoted my life to healing it for people. Yeah. And you just expanded that as you, as you come into the role of a parent to consider young people and families as well. I think we're all honored that you've done that. That's such a <laughs> gift, and I just want to recognize that for a moment. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you for letting me share it. You know, it took a long time for me to be able to really even understand for myself what I was trying to accomplish or what I was even what I was even feeling. So the fact that I was able to put it together like that, I'm pretty, pretty surprised at myself right now. Fantastic work. I know. Isn't it amazing how time and our experience and following what we're drawn to does lead us somewhere yes. coherent eventually? <laughs> yes, definitely. I I really believe that. I love your work because of that, because you really, you focus a lot on that, which I think is great. Thank you so much. So I also was drawn to paganism and folklore, probably specifically by some of the things that I experienced in December, that what we think of in popular culture is the Christmas season, mm -hmm. and is in Germanic countries, probably known as Yule more commonly. And there's this idea that we're looking at today of the 12 days that happen in this period of time somewhere. I'm really curious. I know that there's some pagan origin to this period of time, but I actually don't know much about why it's specifically 12 days or how that came to pass. What would you share? What can you share about the pagan origin of this 12 days of Yule? I would first start by saying that it's not like a really easy question to answer, because as you know, 
with so much of our pagan past, most of the solid information that our ancestors had or of how they did things has been lost as tribes became nations and people lost their land bases and languages and the celebrations connected to those. So I don't think it's fair to say that we can know exactly how many of our ancestors would have celebrated this time period, especially those who relied more on oral history, because the only written documents that we have that references this time was created by Christian monks long after these celebrations were taking place in their quote-unquote original form. But there are some obvious connections. We know, for example, that many cultures all over the world celebrated the winter solstice because it's a pretty dramatic time in the natural world, which obviously our ancestors would have been highly aware of. When I'm sort of trying to follow the breadcrumbs back into history, I usually start with the physical history that's left. For example, like the alignments of Stonehenge and Newgrange as examples how they're aligned to the winter solstice and the rising of the sun to show that, okay, this was an important seasonal shift for our ancestors. There are actually some written, usually sparse documentation from like ancient Rome, for example, but also in Scandinavia and Germania of things that connect the 12 days of Christmas to pagan roots that still remain today, which, but I think the important thing is that Through the 12 days of Yule or the 12 days of Christmas, ancestral practices of the people that came before us still run really deep. Just to give examples, we have the writings from the Roman festival of Saturnalia. So that was a festival that ran between the days of December 17th to the 23rd, which was a sacrifice to the god Saturn, who among many other things was also a god of renewal and rebirth. We can see that thread continuing into the Middle Ages with the Lord of Misrule, for example, because in the Saturnalia celebrations, there was a king of Saturnalia who sort of turned everything upside down. And so it was the enslaved people being served by their masters, or I really don't like using these words, but this is the words that we know. But it was just everything turning on their heads. So we have that those pagan roots from Saturnalia. And then from the pre-Christian Germanic cultures, we have the Yule Blot or the Midwinter Blot, which was an important feast for pre-Christian Germanic peoples. And we know that that survives today because still in many of those countries, this time is known as Yule. So it is still the same word and it's continued on. Although historians actually really debate what the meaning of Yule the word Yule actually comes from. And then in Old English, the month names for December and January respectively mean before Yule and after Yule. So that kind of indicates to us that it was therefore a period of time. It wasn't just the winter solstice. It was a period of time because you have December before Yule and January being after Yule. There is debate whether this 12-day festival was celebrated at the same time as Christmas or whether it was celebrated in mid-January. And that's because our ancestors used a lunar calendar, while today we are on a solar calendar, which is fixed. So some people say that the midwinter blot was celebrated in mid-January and moved to December. 
in the mid 900s to fit the Christian celebration of Christmas to encourage people to become Christian. Those are just some of the examples that I have of how we can sort of start to see some historical reference for this 12-day period. And what you say about the lunar cycle is really interesting. I've been really curious about this 12 days specifically and the fact that this is a period where divination seems to be really common in folklore. People tend to be doing practices that would help them predict the year ahead, harvest of next summer. It's a period where the dead are hanging around more than usual and they are carrying messages from beyond, perhaps. What I'm getting at is that there are 12 or possibly 13 lunar cycles in the year. Yes. It's like the sun calendar, well, it has 365 days, as we know, where the lunar calendar, I think, is like 353 or 354. So there's like a difference of like 11 or 12 nights that sort of become this liminal space because the two calendars cannot reconcile themselves over it. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I was thinking of it like in terms of representing the 12 months of the year, the 12 days represented the 12 months. But there's, and they I didn't do. know about this gap. And they do too, because then during that time, the divination, like for example, in some of the Celtic countries, they're known as the omen days. And then in like the Germanic countries, they're known as, you know, the rough nights or the smoke nights. And it's every day of those 12 days is representative of a month the next year. So like December 26th is January, December 27th is February. And there's a lot of practices stemming back to ancient times where people use natural auguries like fire, smoke, wind, various things like this to determine what that meant for them for the month in the following year. And also people paid a lot of attention to their dreams because it's believed that on those 12 nights, you can get messages through your dreams about how the next year is going to be. This time is also like when the wild hunt happens, when we have the appearance of the winter witches like Bifana, Frauhola, and Perkta. It's a very magical time. Absolutely is. I'm wondering what your favorite of all of these, there's so much folklore in this period of time, of <laughs> course, but specifically the 12 days. What's your favorite piece of folklore associated with? You're going to like this one. And I think your audience is going to like this one too, because for me, it's all about the Christmas gnomes. The Yule Elves, the Tompton, definitely. That is my favorite piece of folklore because it was really the way that I could start getting my children involved in the special time of year. I wanted to involve them. And so I needle felted a Tompton. And these were like figures that I fell in love with when I was an exchange student living in Norway back in the 90s. So I was like, I'm going to make a Tompton and we're going to start giving them offerings of porridge through the 12 days or just some of the days, I think it really laid the foundation for my kids to start thinking about otherworldly beings, our relationship to the unseen, our relationship to ancestors, because it's just such an accessible and adorable 
doorway back to the practices of our ancestors. Absolutely. I think there's something about gnomes. I mean, partly it's like because we all recognize them mm-hmm. and they're in all of our homes, if you believe it or not. But like the household spirit is just like a, an omnipresent, available being. Yeah, it's like gods and these like really past times can seem so abstract and lofty and hard to connect with. But this was something that we never really lost in our culture. We just treated it differently. Yeah, it's like a symbol in our collective memory. And, you know, almost everyone has somewhere in their house a representation of a gnome or a tomten, no matter who you are. Yeah. If you have children's books or you have, if if you have Dutch heritage or whatever, you have a cute mug, it's already there. And now we have a way to love it back. And keep it going because for my kids, they just, they loved these creatures so much during the Yuletide season that we keep them out all year round and they will leave offerings if they lose a toy or a sock or something and they'll ask the house gnome to help them find it. So it really became so much more than just only in this specific time period, which was more than I could have hoped for, honestly. Okay, as I think about this and we're talking about the 12 days and giving offerings on some days and not on other days. So let's start with when you start counting the 12 days. Like, how do you decide personally? Because I think you could start them anytime in December or even early January. When do you start counting the 12 days of Yule for yourself? Me personally, we start on the night before the winter solstice. So whatever day the winter solstice falls on that year, we start the night before. So this year that would be December 20th? Yes. We always kick it off with the first night of Yule for our family is Mother's Night. So it's the time that we honor the Desir or the female ancestors of the mother lines of the people in our family. And I just think that is the best way for us to start because it helps us to remember that the unseen ones, our ancestors, are a part of this celebration. Historically, they are a part of this celebration. I think it's nice to start the 12 days with that firmly in place. That's gorgeous. Yeah, I know that is it December 24th? Is that Modernicht in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles of Bede? Yes, I think again we get, yeah, Bede says it's the 24th, but again we get confused because of this lunar solar calendar situation. So I know a lot of people start the night before the solstice and a lot of people celebrate it on the 24th. Okay, I want to know, it's really easy to get overwhelmed thinking about 12 whole days of celebrations and of traditions and mapping that on to how the Christian celebrations are dominating this time of year. So what would you suggest to people who want to establish pagan traditions for themselves and possibly their families that you might feel overwhelmed by the idea of observing this holiday for 12 days? Yes. That is definitely a big part of this. And I think I want to start answering that question by saying that the way that I look at the 12 days is actually not by adding more to what we're already doing with our lives and our families during this time, 
but it gives us an opportunity to take stock of what we have habitually been doing and to give those things context and ask ourselves, do all of these specific things that we're already doing align with how our individual families work, how our individual selves work? And to take this as an opportunity to say, maybe we need to examine what we have been doing. And if some things are like dreaded things or things that make us feel stressed out, do we need to continue to do them? Or could we perhaps take these 12 days as a way to slow the whole process down? So instead of it being Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, New Year's Eve, we're elongating everything, putting it over 12 days instead of three, for example. So I would invite people to think of it in that way. But I think otherwisely, just to start with what calls to you. What are the symbols of the season that intrigue you or make things feel magic? And to learn more about them. Why are they symbols of the celebration? And start to incorporate some of your findings into your celebrations. Do you love cooking special foods during the season? That's one of the things I really love to do. So where do the foods that you love come from? What are the stories of these recipes? And start giving offerings of these celebratory meals that you make or the crafts that you engage in and share them with your ancestors, with your domestic spirits, land spirits, any gods that you hold dear. And then, of course, be open to whatever messages you might receive from them back. I think these are the most simple ways to connect to the magic of the season, which is kind of the whole point of this season. That's such a relief. (laughs) Thank you for that. Right? Instead of adding like what you need to do, start thinking of the whole period as sacred and watching what bubbles up for you organically in moments of actual reflection and peace. Absolutely. And I think that this is a system that works really well for just individual people, for families, whatever, you know, whoever you are, whatever your situation is, it's always good to take time to reflect on what we do with especially holidays and various seasonal shifts and what our motivation is for doing them. And if it feels right, because that's how we stay attuned to our own intuition which I think is really the most important important thing that we can do as human beings. And I like to think that this is the motivation or could be the motivation for paganism in general and that like paganism is what people were doing that worked <laughs> and inspired them mm-hmm. through history until they were wrapped up in this larger cultural body that had an agenda people's culture was in some ways intuitively created. And I think that's what we can be doing with paganism now is allowing our intuitions to guide us and trusting what our bodies and our spirits are calling for, especially in this time of year. Yes, because we can have all of the historic references that we want. But even with that, we would still not be able to 
practice the rituals and the customs in the exact same way that our ancestors did, even if we knew exactly what they were, because we don't live in those times now and things are different. And so I think it's important to try to, as much as we can as pagans, to remember the past and revere the past and take what we can from it. But ultimately, we have to, it has to be relevant to our lives today. And I don't think that our ancestors would expect anything else from us because they were also changing and moving with their times and their situations as they change. So we're just the latest models of them. We're just doing what they would have done and what they have been doing for millennia. Thank you so much for that. How can people find your work if they want to go deeper, especially with this 12 days of Yule material? The first place to go is my website, which is Jen Campus, Jen with two N's, J-E-N-N Campus, like collegecampus.com. I think I have a lot of helpful little pop-ups on the website right now directing you to the book, The Guide to Celebrating the 12 Days of Yule, and also the 12 Days of Yule mini course that I've been offering the last couple of years, which is another modality to access this. Thank you so much for that. And I really appreciate you coming on to the podcast this week. It's been fantastic to talk to you. And as always, I learned a lot from you and I love to hear your perspective and your really unique personality in terms of your approach to this. <laughs> like, I feel like I could just use so many more pagan educators and writers in my life. And I just, I really treasure the fact that you're here with me and willing to join us and share your love for tradition and for humankind and the world with us today. I share your sentiment. The more pagan teachers and writers that I know, just the more inspired I get to continue along this path because I learn so much from all of you as well. And it just feels nice to know that there's other people looking into this and I don't have to I don't have to know everything and that I can learn from from other great minds and I just feels it feels nice. So thank you so much for having me. I adore you and your work and it's been honestly a pleasure. Thank you so much, Jen. Take care. You too. I hope you've enjoyed this episode so far. I'll give you one or two more suggestions before you go for how to make use of this 12-day season without taxing yourself too much. I want you to remember as you go through this period of time that what's most important is watching, paying attention, resting, being present, and enjoying yourself as much as is reasonable or possible for you. I'll share a ritual that I really enjoyed last year that was taught to me by Amelia Blom that I started on the solstice with her in southern Sweden where I spent that time. In this ritual, you take a piece of paper and you consider what you want in the year ahead. You write down 12 wishes on this piece of paper and you cut them out individually and fold them up so that you can't see them any longer. On the first night, on the solstice or when you decide to start your 12 days, you take one of those wishes, not knowing which one it is, and you put it in 
a fire. You burn it up. Could be a candle, could be your fireplace. And you do the same for the next 10 nights until you have just one piece of paper left on the final night. That day, you open the last wish. And that wish is your responsibility. The others being offered to the gods, the spirits, and those other supernatural visitors that you hope to have in your life. There is a playlist I made a couple of years ago called Big Fat Solstice by Fair Folk Podcast, and that is on Spotify. I add to it every year, and it has dozens and dozens of songs. It's all of the songs I've ever featured on a Christmas episode for Fair Folk in the last six years. So I hope you'll find the link to that in the show notes and enjoy it. If you're not aware of it yet, it is a real gem. I hope that you will go and purchase the music from the artists in this episode. I so appreciate their work, and I know you do too. So to make it sustainable, please visit the links in the show notes where you can buy that music directly from them. The instrumental track you heard in this episode was The Wanderer, a wedding march from Finland, performed by Juniper and the Wolf. I'd like to say a special thanks to Sylvia Woods, whose song Forest March is the opening theme to Fairfolk Podcast. And I'll remind you that if you're interested in my course on the roots of imperialism in the Christian Middle Ages, that there is a discount on the course until December 20th, but the course is still available after that. It begins on January 10th. It's four units long, all delivered by audio recording and educational package through email. You can find the link with all of the information in the show notes below. Thank you so much for listening to Fair Folk Podcast. I hope that you have a beautiful 12 days, and I'll talk to you very soon.